You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Remy Ngamije. Remy is a Rwandan-born Namibian writer and photographer. His short stories have appeared in Litro Magazine, Afrayata, the Johannesburg Review of Books, the Amistad, and many other journals and reviews. He is the founder, chairperson, and art administrator of DOC, an independent arts organization in Namibia that supports the literary arts, and editor-in-chief of DOC Literary Magazine. His work has garnered a wide range of awards, including the Africa Regional Prize of the Commonwealth Short Story Prize, which he won in 2021, the AKO Kane Prize for African Writing, which he was shortlisted for in both 2020 and 2021, the Afrotondo Short Story Prize, which he was shortlisted for in 2021 and longlisted for in 2020, and Best Original Fiction by Stack Magazines, which he was shortlisted for in 2019. Today, we're talking about his debut novel, The Eternal Audience of One, which was originally published in South Africa in June 2019 by Blackbird Books and was republished in the U.S. by Scout Press last month. Remy Ngamije, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here with you. It's it's great to have you. I just have to start off first by telling you the story behind the story is the coolest uh, (laughs) name or title I've heard. And I'm a little bit miffed because... I was uh, working on what I think maybe you might call them craft essays Mm -hmm. in which you explain the story behind the story. And the subtitle for one of these things was story behind the story. And I was like, ah, it's already been used. Ah, damn. No, it's all good. Well, (laughs) it's not trademarked. You're welcome to it. No, it's a wonderful (laughs) idea to talk about the story behind the story. And I'm just so glad to be here with you, Clara. Oh, I'm glad to have you. So I thought I would start today by asking you to describe the main character of the eternal audience of one, Seraphin. How do you see him and how does he see himself? Uh, So how I see him as the creator of a character is he's this early 20s young man who is Rwandan born, but he's living in Namibia and he's on this journey to finding some sort of belonging. He's been raised I guess maybe on the margins, but in migration in which he's never been able to find a home, a place that gives him a stable identity. And so he's basically made up of all of these bits and pieces that have been pulled from his life, either things that he's read or things that he's watched, music that he enjoys, uh, dreams and aspirations that he has, and obviously the challenges of the places in which he has lived or been forced to live in or moved from. And he's on this journey in his last year of law school this time in your life when you must know with a capital yeah. K what you who you are and what you want to be and what you want to do, he still doesn't, but this year is coming to an end. And during the course of this novel, we get to see him and how he sees himself um, through other people. But it's really, that's who I think he's this very confused, very ambitious, but also very, in a lot of ways, very scared, anxious young man who's supposed to make his way in a world that he doesn't fully understand with an unknown, undiscovered past that he's not fully aware of and very uncertain times in his life as well, not only in his family, but also in his life. And he's like, um, you know, when you have a a frozen lake and then in the movies and then it it cracks and then you have like a character trying to wobble on that Uh uh, ice floor or whatever. That's what, that's what I think he is like. He's on he's, that ice floor. He's wobbling. Yeah, he's wobbling. And it, 
And at any moment, it could t- it could tip over and tip him into the frozen lake, but he could also just manage to balance and rescue himself. But that's what I think he is. How, I, how he sees himself, my gosh, I think he, in his conception of himself, he is the center of his universe. I think like everybody who is aware of themselves in some way knows their own intrinsic power, their charm, their wit, their, I don't know, who they are amongst friends. And so... I think he's a very, he knows himself to some degree in that way that he really does think he is the seraphim, not us, seraphim, <laughs> the seraphim. But in that conception of yourself, you always have these fighting dynamics about who are you really, Clara? Like, are you you or are you you in the way that you see yourself because your parents at some point said you were this or your community said you right. are this? Or your university said, you must be this because you came here to yeah. us. And How so much of those who are we are is our perceptions. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's always a weird question, not a weird question, but a weird thing that I think about. Like, how much of you is you and what is you? And so Seraphine, even though he's convinced he is the Seraphine, <laughs> the way the novel plays out, you always have like these weird interludes where you're like, hmm, this is interesting. Another character, if you can say it, so to speak, pops out. And he uses humor both to kind of like fit in and charm and also I think kind of to deflect a lot of the the sort of anxieties that he has that he doesn't want to acknowledge. I feel like humor is the best force, some of, one of the best force fields that yeah. humans have developed to face their harsh environments. Behind humor, you can hide so much, like a lot of hardship you can you can use it to cover up a lot of hurt uh, and inflict hurt as well. That's mm. something that needs to be said. I mean, part of romance requires a little bit of humor, doesn't it? I mean, that first date, someone's <laughs> funny. It just it just makes the romance a little bit easier. Behind humor, I always find like there's always a lot of hidden and unaddressed issues. And in Seraphine's case, witty as heck, yeah, sure. But mm, this brother got some issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when you're writing humor, because I think it's one of, that was one of the things that sort of drew me to this novel in all of the blurbs is talking about how it's laugh out loud funny or yeah. like wildly hilarious or something like that. <laughs> so how how did you think about the humor that you were encoding into Seraphim and uh, Seraphim and his personality as you were writing it? And were there particular techniques that you used to show the humor both as its sort of funny side, but also as that kind of defense mechanism? I think my my understanding of humor really comes from the books that I've read. So my sense of humor was really developed by characters, by not characters, by writers like uh, Roald Dahl. Mm. We grew up li- reading this children's story and, you know, he's got a, a sense of humor that children can understand easily. Immediately after Roald Dahl, ooh, I was introduced to Terry Pratchett, who oh, is wow. just yeah, the master. <laughs> oh, so once you once you have that in your in your background in your context, you just you can't not avoid laughing at like some of the absurd situations that life throws throws at you. And then obviously you have other wonderful writers who have humor in their work, but it's like veiled and it's sly, but it's always there. Writers like. Zadie Smith, I've always enjoyed. Marlon James, I've always enjoyed. Juno Diaz, some of his works I've enjoyed. And then you're growing up watching things like Quite Interesting with uh, Stephen Fry. Or, you know, a lot of like the British humor. So you develop all of those things. They seep into you some way. I don't know how and I don't know when, but I can tell you that 
when you write, somehow when you're the writer, you reach to all of these other things that you've read and comes out in your work, or hopefully it does. For me, the technique was, it wasn't really hard because the place in which the story is set and the situations the characters find themselves in lend themselves to humor, because even in real life, those situations are absurd. A night out at the club going horribly wrong is yeah. not a, you don't have to inject too much into it because that happens already. But in using that humor to show a deeper underlying and disturbing issue, that is where I really had to sit and reflect and say, it's cool to ha-ha-ha here, but why are we ha-ha-ing? And yeah. when, when, look, when, you, when you think about the dialogue that just happened between two characters, when you sit back and you look at it, you're like, whoa, there's, this is deep. Like, it's funny, yes, but if you poke beneath the surface, you're like, there's a lot of hurt here. And to deal with that, for me, was the more challenging issue to, to not only laugh at characters or laugh with them, but to show the humane challenges that they face in, a, in, in an approachable way. That was challenging. And I cannot lie to you, Clara, and say that I didn't know everything and a lot of it was trial and error. Mm. And afterwards, once you've written the situation, because when you're writing, you're just like, ha I am so awesome. This is funny. <laughs> and then when you... <laughs> Because it keeps you, you going, know, right? Those, like, yeah, you uh... do know. Yeah, you do know when you're writing, you know what you're doing on the sentence. But I think it is on that read through, that second, third, fourth read through, when you're approaching, you're like, huh, this is deeper than I thought. And then you go and you enrich the narrative. Then it's not just about humor or gags or whatever. It's about laugh. But once you finish laughing, let's talk about yeah. what just went down. I like that a lot. Yeah. I feel like we're going to talk a lot about technique in this one because one of the other yeah, things... Yeah, let's, let's, let's. You're talking, this novel is so good down to the sentence level. And throughout it, you introduce seemingly innocuous words or phrases that through repetition come to carry a lot more meaning. So yeah. two examples, I thought of a third uh, <laughs> just as we were starting this interview. Um, two of them are the shortened form of, of the main character's name, Sera. Yeah, um, yeah. And the words that his father says to his mother, I agree. And then the third one I thought of was, hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they, they function in the book almost like trail markers. And so I, yeah. I kind of wanted to ask you, like, both, I, I feel like this has to be a conscious technique that you're, that you're using, but is it something that you're consciously deploying at different places? Or is it something that sort of develops where you see, oh, this thing has more meaning as you're going through the novel? Oh, that is a wonderful question, Clara. Like, yo, you're going in. I feel like I'm about to graduate from this interview with an MFA. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I got my MFA from the story behind the story. <laughs> <laughs> I, try to t I try to take writing seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so, for example, with naming a character, this is something that I've seen in our own Rwandan culture, yeah? Mm. When you name a child, it's it's almost prophetic in some way. Our language is heavily contextual. It's imbued with like, at the language level, at the purely word level, a word can be aspirational, spiritual, metaphysical, mm. and fatalistic, which is like scary. So you have like parents who name their kids weird things, and then you're not surprised when their kids do those weird things. And you're <laughs> named after a situation. Like, for example, we know some kids who are named after a particular struggle or time in their parents' yeah. lives or whatever. 
And then later on, you look at like these people and they're grown up and, you know, their temperament and mood. And you're like, wow, you really came to embody this concept that was in your parents' life or the context in which you were born. That stuff is interesting. So when you have a character and you name them Seraphim, uh, the Seraphinic angels, what they represent in Christian religion is like they're the highest order of angels, for example. There's only six of them. And so that, for example, when you're naming this character Seraphim, you're also tapping into those things. But as a writer, you, you, you can't just rely on themes or things that have already gone. You have to try and do something with them. So with Seraphim, it's interesting because you can always play with that name and break it down to right. interesting things like Sarah. So on the one hand, Seraphim in Kinyarano would be particularly like a masculine name. But if you show him down to Sarah, it's a little right. bit ambiguous. Because if you, depending on how you pronounce it, it could be Sarah. And it could be Sarah or Sarah. But it's, it gives you options to play with, with language. Then the ending, Finn, you can play with that in also interesting words like Finn, fine, or in the French end, Seraphin, like fun, right. like the end. And so it's like when you're playing, when you've decided to write a story about beginnings and endings, when you have a name that can be chopped and screwed up in interesting ways, you, you're you almost like, how far can I stretch this? Can I use this in this way? And you're, you're at liberty to have fun with it. So that's, for example, like Sarah, where the Sarah thing comes from. Then you have other things like, you know, you mentioned, hmm, isn't that just like the most wonderful oh, yeah. series of words? H triple M, just hmm. <laughs> the way you can hide so many things behind that word, both uncertainty, displeasure, agreement, you know, there's so many things you can hide behind that. Yeah. It wasn't intentional. But what I've seen is I remember the way my parents used to use hmm. And the, you just as a kid, you're like, what, what what does that mean? Like, I don't understand right. what's that what's behind that. And in a story, it's wonderful because then the reader doesn't know what's hiding behind that hmm or what's gonna come next. Or what what is gonna what came before? Like you can yeah. you can use and hide entire histories behind like just that nice simple phrase. Hmm. And, and it forces and people to thing, pay attention too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what was the other thing that you mentioned? Clark? I agree. I agree. Oh man, isn't that the hardest thing to find in the world right now? Consensus. Hmm. Just I agree. <laughs> and you just use I know. Hmm I just realized it as I said. <laughs> It is, though. <laughs> yeah. And to to listen to someone else and say, I agree from top to bottom, not however, but just to say, I agree. It's, it's a big thing in the world right now because we can't seem to reach consensus. But in the story, given that people are searching for very, very big things like home, belonging, personality, decency, dignity, agreeing with someone is just like acknowledging that simple humanity. I have heard you, I've listened to you, I understand your struggle, and I agree. And its constant occurrence in the narrative is wonder is a wonderful way to drive the plot along in subtle ways until you reach a point where you're like, so this is where the wisdom behind I agree comes from. Because when you've read the story, you realize the history of why one the, of the way one character yeah. uses it and where it comes from and why it's so important. It has a backstory to the present 
And those were things I was just interested in, 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 in getting into. Was it all conscious? I, I do not know, Clara, but I do know that when I was writing, I didn't write I agree or hmm or you, Sarah, in, uh, in flippant ways. It was, mm. it must be here. And it felt right when, it put, when I put it there on paper. Obviously now, later, as you know, now that it's on print, I can be like, of course I totally intended to do that. And I love it when readers like you you know, have new interpretations because I can totally take credit for them and say, of course, <laughs> I totally intended that. But honestly, I, I, I don't know whether I was conscious, but I know when it was made and when it was written, it made sense. I was thinking as you were talking about, I agree specifically, I have a friend who was telling me recently that she she feels like people don't say you're right anymore. They say you're not wrong. Yeah. And I think there's something similar, like something analogous to that, that yeah. There's something simple about saying you're right or about saying I agree or these other things, something that is like just straight up mm-hmm. validating that you're mm-hmm. sort of hearing the other person and understanding their perspective. And all these flips on it are clever, but they they don't accomplish that same thing. It's the same thing with uh, the hardest words. I am sorry. Oh, yeah. People find so many ways to get around saying this word. I am sorry. They'll say... My bad, my bad. I'm like, that's, yeah, like we know you're bad, but I'm sorry because those words carry consequences. Yeah, It implies that you know what you're sorry for. You're aware of the hurt that has been perpetrated. And most importantly, that you're committed through future action to correcting that thing. That's why I'm so sorry. So it's such a big thing. It's like, a, yeah. it's not a present tense thing. It's a future tense thing. Mm. Like, I'm sorry this happened and I'm going to, it's from habitual. this point forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From, 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 from this point forward, I will do actions that not only correct that past hurt, but make sure that it doesn't happen again. Whereas my bad, it's just, eh, just here and now, my bad. <laughs> well, Whereas, and I agree, also takes into part the past of the thing that you're agreeing with, and then it plots a, it sets a, a finite moment in time that consensus has been reached, and then forward, what are we going to do? Because we agree. And that's just so hard, it seems to recent in today's yeah. world. Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program On Being, hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. here at K-Squid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer and photographer Remy Ngamije, whose debut book, The Eternal Audience of One, follows a young man whose life is defined by movement as he searches for his place in the world. It's interesting that you mentioned I'm Sorry because that is also a sort of a marker of Seraphim's growth throughout the book. Yeah, yeah, because this guy, this brother is not the sorry type, yo. Like, he, he's convinced of his own rightness. And righteousness, and he's very, yeah. <laughs> And righteousness. He's very convinced and very aware. Perhaps maybe that's, that's one of his, inte- uh, you know, he's, he's not a dumb guy. He's very intelligent. But he responds to things in ways that are intelligent, but maybe not emotionally correct. He intellectualizes them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He can't, sometimes he can't understand the other person and where they're coming from. And so 
the idea of apology is just would it would take into consideration all of those things that we spoke about. This brother just moves through his timeline like not consequence free, but he can see things happening. But sometimes I feel like he sees himself like it's a movie. Like he breaks mm. the fourth wall and is like, "Dear reader, <laughs> I did not apologize." And you're just like, "Oh Lord, this brother." But um, you you are correct. I'm sorry is like a very big thing in the novel, and. In some ways, on top of looking for homes and places of belonging, people are just looking for some affirmation that the things that have happened to them or the people that have happened to them weren't their fault. It's not your fault that you have to leave home because of a war. It's not your fault that a relationship ends because you were not mature enough to take that on. It's not your fault that you're in diaspora. It's not your fault, but people are looking that's sorry from somewhere, from the universe, from time, from space. And it will just let them know that it's fine. Like, you don't have to apologize for this thing. So I think that's a good segue into uh, Serfin's complicated relationship with the word refugee. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. So uh, the meaning of a refugee is someone who has left home because of some trouble. That trouble can be... Uh, a natural disaster. It can be man-made, like it's a war, or uh, and you have legally left your country, or rather left your country under duress to go to another country to seek refuge. That's mm-hmm. where refugee comes from. I'm, I am here, Clara, to look for refuge at your house because my house is flooded. Can you take me in for a couple of days? Technically, that's a refugee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? But also... In the same vein, a friend crashing on your couch uh, because they, their university accommodation hasn't opened yet, that's also taking refuge because you've taken them in. And in taking them in, you've taken them, like if Remy crashes on your couch and Remy has got smelly feet, those smelly feet are <laughs> going to be part of your life now. You They're know? your smelly so feet you too. Take, yeah, <laughs> so you, they, they take you, you take all of that in. But the status of a refugee in today's world comes with very big legal consequences and social status. They have a, a lowered social status for things that, didn't, that they had no control over. If an earthquake comes and destroys your country and you have to move abroad, how is that earthquake? How could you have stopped that? And somehow you are made to feel less like the earthquake was your fault, like why are you here? Why can't you just go back home? Because home doesn't exist anymore. Um, and his relation with refugee is, it is an inherited learned characteristic that his parents have observed that to be a refugee in any country lowers your status. Whereas if you have been fortunate enough to leave your country with a passport that can be stamped at customs or at the airport, whatever that allows you legal entry, even though you are physically a refugee, like you're in this country because your country can no longer house you or provide you security and stability. That paper, it saves you from that status, even though on paper you're both the same. And it's something that I've witnessed, for example, in Cape Town, there's a difference between being an immigrant and being a refugee. Hmm. In my opinion, all both of them are looking for the same thing, a better, decent and dignified life. And those two statuses are very, very important because refugees are never 
they're never allowed to forget that there are refugees. Whereas in some cases, immigrants sometimes have a smoother transition into a society. Obviously, their hardships are still very, very hard, but both of them are searching for the same thing. And they're coming in many instances from the same um, from the same situations, which is where, like, for example, Seraphim's situation comes in. In Rwanda, in that, at that time, there were two classes of people living in Rwanda, immigrants and refugees. And where you're one determined where you could be in the world, where you could land in the world. Back then, it seemed like if you're a refugee, yes, you could flee to places like Belgium because they were taking them in. And that could allow you to land in a, in a country that was substantially more well-off than yours, perhaps. Whereas if you're an immigrant, you might have been able to move to a country like Kenya or Uganda, whatever, and probably root or ground yourself quicker because it's closer to home. But those two statuses defined where ultimately you're going to wind up because you don't want to be a refugee because you might wind up in a refugee camp mm. and be treated and have a lesser status and be allowed to do less. So Seraphine's understanding of that word, I think, is it's inherited from his parents' struggle to never be seen as these things, even though they know deep down we're here because we can't go home. But it's important. You never want to pass that on to your kid. So you always tell them, no, you're not a refugee. You are, you're, you're, a, you, you're here with a passport and you're allowed to do these things because you don't want them to learn that. And that's so interesting, though, because right, the, that approach is not to say this is the wrong interpretation, but to distance yourself mm. from something or, and to encourage your family to distance themselves from something that, like, that other people perceive in this way. I found mm. it really interesting as you were talking about this. There's a like transactional assumption in both yeah. the the definition you gave for refugee and for um, immigrant, and they're they're sort of opposite transactions, right? Like in the case of the refugee, as you're talking about it, it's like there's this assumption that the new host country is doing a favor to the refugee, yeah, right? Yeah. And so the refugee owes it to the host country to just be grateful for whatever they get. Whereas on the immigrant side, even as there are also a lot of sort of, uh, like a lot of, there's a lot of baggage with that as well and a lot of difficulties, there is this assumption encoded in that that they're giving something back. Yeah, yeah. So that... That is true. Owing is different. You yeah. you you hit it like smack bang on the head, even though both parties are still in the pursuit of the same thing and capable of doing the same thing. Yeah. And I cannot emphasize to you how important those those things are. And when you grow up in migration, the way, for example, your parents take on that burden of saying, we are going to internalize our refugeehood but we are not going to pass that on to our kids. So we're going to raise mm -hmm. them in a way that makes them feel empowered and you must take part in greater society. You're an equal. Because the passing on of that thing also leads... Uh, there's, there's so many sad consequences that come from learning yeah. that... That like internalized... Yeah, yeah. It, it leads to a lot of very, very sad narratives and stories. Well, we're, believe it or not, about halfway in. So I think now is a good time to have you read an excerpt from the book. Um, so I'm going to ask you to just tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear first and then dive right in. 
I am going to read from the prologue of The Eternal Audience of One because it is saucy and scandalous, uh, <laughs> but it will provide you with a context for where the story is set, which is Vintuk, Namibia's capital city. Prologue. A long-forgotten essay. The Last Ticket Out of Town by Seraphine Turihamwe. Vintuk has three temperatures, hot, mosquito, and effing cold. The city is allowed two or three days of mild spring weather in early September before the unrelenting heat crowds them out until May. The summers are long and sweaty, so much so that job offers can be sweetened by the promise of air conditioning and an overseeing committee to adjudicate on room temperature disputes because white people do not know how to share. Summer nights are stifling. Cooling breezes heat their curfews and leave the night air still and warm from the day's lingering heat. The departing sun brings out the mosquitoes. They are organized. They are driven. If they could be employed, they would be the city's most reliable workforce. Alas, people do not have my vision. From sunset to sunrise, they make enjoying a quiet evening drink on a balcony, a buzzing and bloody affair. June, July, and August are bitter and cold. An ill wind clears out the gyms. Running noses are the only exercise anyone gets in the winter. The city is called a city because the country needs one, but really, city is a big word for such a small place. But it would probably be offensive to have a capital town or a capital village, so someone called it a city. The title stuck. Life is not hard in Vintuk, but it is not easy either. The poor are either falling behind or falling pregnant. The rich refuse to send the elevator back down when they reach the top. And since cities require a sturdy foundation of tolerated inequalities, Vintuk is like many other big places in the world. It is a haven for more, but a place of less. If you are not politically connected or from old white money, then the best thing to be is a tourist. The city and the country fawn over tourists. The country's economy does too. That is when it is not digging itself poor. That is Vintuk. The best thing to do in the city is arrive and leave. The mistake you want to avoid making is trying to make the most of it. My parents did that. I have not forgiven them for their sense of optimism. You will notice it in many people. There is a strange national pride I cannot explain, a patriotic denial of reality. Beware of that optimism. It will creep up on you. It will make you notice how, in the early morning, the streets are hushed and the city's pulse is slowed down to a rhythmic, nearly non-existent thump-thump. The only people to be seen on the streets are drowsy night shift security guards. The garbage collectors hanging from the backs of dumpster trucks as they do their rounds, and a few stray cats. That is when it is at its best. Vintuk has not yet prostituted itself to neon and skyscrapers, so a horizon is always a short hill climb away, and nature still squats on its outer extremities. The views are spectacular. The same optimism might lead an early riser to be up before the sun to see how the approaching light gently shakes the city awake. Alarm bells ring as children and parents prepare for school. The blue collars make their way to a bus or truck stop and wait to be carried towards places of cheap labor. And the white collars take their time getting to desks and offices. As the day brightens, the cracked tarmac that lines the city's main artery sighs and stretches, preparing for the new day when the increasing traffic will become a viscous mess of commuters and taxis. When it is going at a full tilt, Vintov does so at a slow hum. It pays respects to the Gregorian calendar and then some. Mondays and Tuesdays are busy. Wednesdays and Thursdays are reserved for concluding auxiliary matters. On Fridays, 
everything shuts down with a firm understanding that the weekend is in session and nothing and nobody should upset the established order of things. The city has strict boredom and business hours and it keeps them. The autumn days after the high summer are the best. The sky is afire with an intense passion. It burns with bright orange and red hues which target unprepared heartstrings before blushing into cooler pinks that tickle the clouds. The day's fervor cools down into violent violets as evening approaches. Vintuk has good days and it has bad days. But ideally, you should not be here long enough to know that. If you have made the mistake of tiring too long in the city and forgotten to purchase the last ticket out of town, you might have to do something more challenging. Actually live here. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. So I wanted to first ask you, what is the prologue doing in The Eternal Audience of One? What's its role in the novel? My, as an amateur writer, as a first-time writer, with this thing being the, the first long narrative that I've written and worked on, for me as a writer, it is setting the background context of the novel, where the place takes from. It's like a, a, a finite grounding of place. It gives me as the writer a place from which to work, but a place to actively try and steer the narrative from. But I think and I hope for the reader, what it is, it paints this background thing that you always have to be aware of and realize, oh, this thing is happening because it's a Tuesday in hmm. Namibia and this is the only day when you can get things done. And whereas if something happens on a Wednesday and disappointment happens, you're like, oh, yeah, offices are closed now. I, I forgot about that. So my hope is that the prologue sets this background geography, social and economic climate that explains other things that are not explained. Because it is hoped that once you understand the context this narrative comes from, then you don't have to, then I don't, I as the writer don't have to spend so much time explaining this is why this happened because of this thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, that's the hope as the writer. Uh, but as the reader, it's really just to paint um, this background canvas, like never forget that this is what's happening in the background, even as you enjoy or laugh or cry at this thing that happens in the foreground, don't forget the background. As a writer, it's just really providing me with a, a safe place to start thing. Because I, as you know, this interrogation of where stories start is something that goes on throughout the novel. Yeah. But as a writer, you need a place to put that first capital letter. And this prologue specifically for me is like a landing place where you can push off. It's like gravity. You can't just twirl head over feet endlessly forever. So it's like gravity says, boom, feet here. Now we can push off, we can run, we can do all of these other things. Well, and it's interesting because, right, it, you started a long forgotten essay and then go into this essay that presumably was written by Seraphin. Um, and so, it's one of the sort of few times and and the only one early on where we're getting his view. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we're always sort of getting his view, but we're directly getting yeah. a picture of Vindhook as he sees it. Yeah. And sort of it's, in some ways, it's him marking a start as well. Definitely. So as you correctly said, it is one of the few times where you see his direct and clear viewpoint of the world. As, as, as he lives in it, as he participates in it. And um, when writing it, it was hoped that once you, you, you see how Seraphim sees the world, 
then a lot of the other things that he does make sense. Yeah. It makes sense that he would behave in a particular way. But once you see how he sees the world, you can also clearly see his blind spots yeah. as a reader. So when things happen to him or around him and he's not aware of them, you can be like, yeah, but that's because you you see these things. You can really nail this issue on the head. But from your initial voice, we can definitely tell that some of these things are going to fly under your radar. And so it's hoped that this like this back and forth between the writer and the reader with Seraphine in the middle, like watch what happens to him here. And, and then if the reader understands like, ah, this brother's about to get himself in a whole heap of trouble because <laughs> there's this thing that you've seen. It's like, nah, I can see this brother doesn't see, you know, it's like a, yeah. when you tell someone like she's colorblind and then they, you can see in the movie they're pulling up to a red light and they're like, they can't see the red light because mm. <laughs> they're colorblind. And so when they drive through that intersection and you have that background information, it still doesn't help you that cringe moment. You're like, I hope nothing bad happens, even though you've been told yeah, they're yeah. colorblind. And yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't protect the reader from uh, Seraphim from the things that are going to happen or do happen to him. But the reader hopefully is given a wider platform which to interact with and question, interrogate. Yeah. Because you're like, ah, this is why this brother acts in this way. Yeah. Because this is his viewpoint on life. Tune in to KSQD Sunday at 6 p.m. for State of Mind, produced by local therapist Deborah Sloss. For National Suicide Prevention Month, we focus on this issue for teens and young adults. Being informed about suicide can help prevent many of these tragic deaths. The show looks at suicidal feelings, where to find help and support, and how to recognize warning signs. Listen and learn real ways to help others who may be struggling. Part one of a two-part series, next month's show looks at the complicated grief and recovery from losing a loved one to suicide. Join us for new understandings and seeds of possibility on State of Mind, Sunday evening at 6, here on KSquid 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer and photographer Remy Ngamije, whose debut book, The Eternal Audience of One, follows a young man whose life is defined by movement as he searches for his place in the world. So why do you think Seraphin finds Vindhook so stifling? Uh, because it is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you honest, two hands on the Bible. Vindhook is a small place in terms of geography, in terms of population, in terms of things that are here. So when you think about a city, that word, it conjures up images of a metropolitan, cosmopolitan place where on a random Tuesday, you can leave your house and go have a grand time because it's Tuesday in the big city, you know? Whereas Vintuk is not the embodiment of those things. It is a city, but it is a different kind of city. And that's why, for example, Vintuk feels small. It feels small because we are always comparing it to the bigger places in mm. the world that carry that title as well. So if New York is a city, how on earth is Vintuk also a city? Like both of them have the same titles, but then also Hong Kong also has city and then Shanghai is also a city, but we're like the smallest. Rather, that smallness comes from knowing what these other big places are and having some form of insecurity about what we are. Yeah, we could yeah. be a city, but... We've never developed our own identity and say, this is what being a city means to us. And so our version of Vintuk is always defined by what we don't have instead of what we do have. So we do not have Broadway. Because we don't have Broadway, Vintuk feels smaller because you don't have Broadway. But we do have 
is this one street with a theater on it. And maybe it will be nice if we just supported the theater a little more and accept that this is what, what we have. So you yeah. understand, like, the smallness comes from all the things from that, that comparison. we do not have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we will not have Times Square, but maybe we have something else that is our own. And if we, if we like it for what it is, then we wouldn't feel so left out of, like, this bigger context all the time. But above and beyond that, it is stifling because um, life here is very harsh, small economy, very few opportunities to uplift yourself or your family or your community. So it's aggressively competitive. Um, and for an outsider like Seraphim, it's very hard to get a toehold in society because everything is expected to follow a particular narrative. You know, Namibians first. And even if you're in Namibia, if you're in Namibian, there are hierarchies mm, within mm-hmm. the various uh, groups that exist in the country. And so to find a foothold can be very, very challenging. And that that aggressive competitiveness that you're describing, right, like that that sort of enforces that comparing yourself to others, right? So, definitely, definitely. <laughs> right, like if if that's part of the stifling, being in a yeah. place where that is hyper competitive is is going to sort of orient you toward doing that comparison that you find definitely, especially when that hyper competitiveness or scarcity is amplified with messages coming from elsewhere that things are either easier or better. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. if if you are being told all the time, for example, from the things that you're ingesting, oh, wow, your city doesn't even have a Broadway, you'll be like, well, let me try and go where Broadway is because clearly it seems like that's where things happen. Uh, and so that also adds to the stifling nature of Vinton. The society is actually quite conservative. Uh, whoa, the missionaries did a number on us here, hey? So mm-hmm. it's quite stifling. It's very hard to leave, to live a decent and dignified life if you're from a sexual minority. Mm-hmm. If you are a woman, it's very, very hard. Yeah, religion plays a very, very big thing here. Even though we're supposed to be secular, it's very, very conservative, you know? And when you're coming of age and you're exploring yourself and you're, you're, you're trying to find out who you are and your place in the world. It is a lot harder in a place that says, well, this is what you are. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, this is, the, this is the type and this is what you are. But you're, you're looking at the type and you're like, but I'm not the type. So it adds to that feeling of like, well, I must go somewhere else to find out who and what I am. Or to even if you, and worse, if you do know, when you realize this place can never support you, you know you will never be welcome if you're a particular kind of person drives a lot of migration yeah. as well. So that's an understanding of Vintuk. And now, presently, in 2021, Vintuk is stifling because, obviously, because of the pandemic, but worse, because the pandemic has taken away a lot of the things that have taken 20 years to build, mm-hmm. like the art scene, like the music scene, because it's a desert and because it's a small community, because we don't have, like, a big population. These things take such a long time to build, that critical mass. And in just two years, it can, this pandemic can just arrive and take that away. So that feels like, it feels for me at 33, like I'm back to that space in 1997, when you're just like, why this place? Why, why here? Like, how, how are we back here? You know, I'm, I'm playing Dixie, Ch- uh, sorry, not, they're not the Dixie Chicks anymore. They're the Chicks now, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm playing wide open spaces as much as I was back then. <laughs> Uh, I am 
trying to lead small town life as much as I was back then. I mean, and that's purely because of the pandemic, you know, it's, yeah. it sucks, but yeah, wide open spaces. I, I, I recently wrote about that and just, I was like, why am I playing this song so much? And it's like, I realized this is the stuff I was feeling when I was 13 and 14 when this song came out. I mean, <laughs> anyone who's anyone who's listened to like wide open spaces knows the small town life people are trying to escape, yeah. looking for better, looking for different. And that's that's a feeling like we all have right now because we're desperately trying to escape this pandemic. Yeah. Well, that's actually a good transition for a yeah. question. I was trying to figure out how to work back in. Serfin is a big fan of playlists, and yeah. he kind of uses them to narrativize his life, right? Yeah. He, yeah. he, I think he even says something um, at one point where he's he's talking to uh, Silmarie and saying that playlists have to tell a story; that they can't just be yeah. songs. <laughs> so, why? Yeah, talk to me about like what he's doing with that. Like, how how aware is he that he's using this to to narrativize his life and? Yeah, why is it something that he needs? Well, music is, I think, a secondary language in the eternal audience of one uh, because it really does play a prominent role, whether it is this playlist that he's making or the places that they go to and the music that he's played, they counter. Uh, but in playlisting, music always tells a story, like good music in some ways tells a story. Now, as a listener of music, um, I always wonder like, you know, like a reader of a book, I always wonder about the intention of the writer. Like, what is it that they were trying to story? What story were they trying to tell when they wrote when they wrote this or composed the song? And when I listen, because I have a different, I might have a different feeling or mood or interpretation. And then in playlisting, what Seraphin is doing is he is rearranging other people's story to try and tell his in a way. So with other characters when it's a romantic situation. He's perhaps using other people's music to arrange it in a way that tells somebody, I like you, without having to say that embarrassing word, mm -hmm. I like you. So you say it through music because the music will communicate this sensation or this feeling or this intention. But it also, in a way, helps to pin that particular moment to the things that you're listening to. Like, this is where this dude is in his oral development. This is what he's listening to. This is how, how he's communicating with people. But playlisting is such, as an, as an act of art curation, it's very, it can be very powerful. And I don't know whether you did this oh, in all the, the bygone time. days. As a teenager, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wasn't that so cool hearing someone else's arrangement of music mm -hmm. and then talking about like, I like this song because of this and the way they arrange it. It's the care the way, and the effort. Yeah, yeah. The way you can take this Alanis Morissette and song and pair it or put it before this David Gray song. And then you have like these two songs from across the Atlantic or wherever talking to each other. But the narrative is like dope and it takes you into a mood and then out of a mood. Or like when... Did you ever make like a breakup playlist? Like oh, who didn't? Playlist. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, how, how, how wonderful was it to listen to that conversation and leave after it was done? You felt a little better, even yeah. though like you're sour, you're shouting out things and yada, yada, but you felt a little bit better. And that's what I think music does as a secondary language. You can use other artists' compositions, layer them in such a way that they provide you with this 
oral experience in which you're able to experience catharsis, but you're also able to free yourself from a particular thing in your life. So what Seraphim does in arranging playlists is he's finding a new way to communicate with other people. So remember we spoke about like, yeah, this brother's intelligent, sure, witty, maybe smart or whatever words you want to compare him, but maybe music is, these playlists are a way for him to make up for that thing that he lacks. Yeah, And that's not something I'm saying that he's consciously doing, but it's, it's an interpretation that could be valid. Some people do it through uh, writing letters or something. I know Darcy and Jane Austen's novel did that, but maybe this is his way of like trying to win Elizabeth back. I just wanted to let you know that I secretly liked you since the beginning. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're closing in on the end. I want to ask you one more question about this book, and then we'll ask some questions about what you're working on now. So All right. why don't you tell me about Seraphin's relationship with his family? Who does he think his parents are <laughs> and how does that fit or not with reality? Oh man, who who knows their parents? A lot of us, especially I could say maybe African kids, our parents are, their past lives, their internal lives are mysteries to us because they are, they're just like your parents. They, they're forced to play this finite role of provider, of caretaker, of correctional officer, of uh, the, the, they're the enemies of fun or progress. You see them in but relationship they, to your life. Yeah, and they're all often always posited as barriers to who you want to be without being aware that they have internal histories. They're, they're people all on their own and they come with past. I don't think Seraphine in any way, shape or form is able to understand that about his parents yeah. because they've been in this thing. So again... Migration forces people into roles that mm. they would not otherwise be in. If you're in an ideal situation when you're in home, you have your mom, your dad, your kids, whatever, and then an extended family. And that helps to dilute the various roles in family. You can have the crazy cousin, you can have the cool uncle, you can have the, the aunt that always buys you nice presents, and you can have grandparents and yada, yada, yada. But when you're in migration, some of those familiar relations and roles get taken away mm. and they get forced on parents specifically to be like the provider. There must be mom, dad, and, and great grandfather and order because that's all you have in migration, your immediate community. That's very hard for kids because kids only have this point. Literally parents become a point of authority. And that can be sometimes very harsh when you're caught in migration. And I think Seraphine has that relationship with his parents. They're like these things in his life that are there by, by the law of biology. If you're going to be a son, there must be a father and a mother. And mm. so I think his relationship is like, well, you know, you're here because I must have you as parents. But only later on in the novel does his relationship change after particular encounters when he's made aware that everyone has an internality to them that you're not even aware of. They have a past that you cannot comprehend. So it's interesting that in novel that Seraphine, the, the writing is able to bring out alternative versions of him that show a better rounded character, but he's not able to realize that about other people. And yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that in the pages, the reader is able to understand them uh, better. But Seraphine's relationship to his parents is complicated in the sense that um, 
the sense that he's not aware. And then when he is forced to confront that his parents are people, people in the sense that they have a past, they had a life before you, they had ambitions, they had dreams. And, you know, that, again, that apologetic nature of migration, like, we're not this way because we chose to be this way. Right, We're this right. way because of Right, life. he thinks they're very provincial, and he thinks yeah, that that's, I like, mean, what they want to be. <laughs> and isn't, yeah, and isn't that hurtful? Like, yeah. when a kid thinks that about your parents, and you're just not able to, to reach across to their struggles. And hopefully along his journey, at least on paper, Seraphim comes to some sort of understanding that at least at least there's the spark of curiosity that whoa, these are people. Yeah. When you understand that your parents also want things out of life that are beyond you, sometimes even bigger than you. Ooh, it leads to a wonderful moment of introspection and hopefully growth. Yeah. yeah. So we're we're almost out of time, but I wanted to make sure I, I got a chance to ask you what you're working on now. Oh. Surviving the pandemic. No, I'm joking. Uh, I, <laughs> that too. But um, I am putting together a collection of short stories. So let me explain. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have some stories picked up and read and you know listed for awards and whatnot. But all of the short stories were written um, when my novel was published in South Africa, when I needed to create, or rather I was in encouraged to try and get work out to try and build like a a name for yourself or mm -hmm. get something behind you because you know publishing is very risky and to have an unknown writer in the universe it's, it's very hard to punt that book so i wrote this collection of short stories and i wrote one and then i wrote another and then i realized they were all part of the same timeline or universe but then i wrote each of them separately and then they're all Interesting, they all started getting picked up at various points in time. Mm. And so now what I'm trying to do is put them together so that to see if a reader can pick out the narrative flow between them. Because they're all interrelated. So like, imagine if I sent you a puzzle piece and I sent your friend another puzzle piece and then another puzzle piece is scattered some in the years. And then you look at this puzzle piece and then just one day at dinner, you and your friend they're like, whoa, they match. And then you see the semblance of an image. And then you're like, oh, where are the other puzzle pieces? So <laughs> I'm going to, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to put a collection together that sort of like explains, or not explains, you're but making like a playlist. Puzzle. <laughs> That's a good one because the byline is, I'm calling it a, a, a literary mixtape. <laughs> I like so it. instead of music, you have short stories. And so there's an A side and there's a B side. And depending on how you read them, you get one experience. And then if you jump across, you get another experience. So it's like trying to curate this literary reading experience where you have three different things. If you read the A track only, A side only, you have one, one narrative. If you read the B side, you have another. But then if you jump across A and B, then you have, oh, nice. That's, I don't know. I don't know. It's ambitious, but we'll see what it, whether, whether, where it manages to work. And then obviously, I love, now that I've got the taste of novel writing, I have another long-term idea that I need to get myself in shape for. Um, mentally, physically, make the time for it to yeah. sit down and, and think. Because I can see it. It is ambitious. It is big. It is, as a writer, scary. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that work. And it's really all about just creating the time and space for it. Well, I look forward to all of it. Remy Ngamije, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been delightful. 
I do appreciate it. Thanks for getting up early in the morning to do this thing. It's like 7.23 over here in the evening, but I realize like California is on the <laughs> other side of the world. It is a bit, but you know, it's worth it. Thank you so much. You can learn more about Remy at his website, remythequill.com, and you can purchase a copy of The Eternal Audience of One wherever books are sold. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Linear Salmons. He also wrote our theme. 